It is New Year's time. My daughter has learned 15 new words in the last five days, and so if you hear anything random from this side of the room, you can know it's her amening. Uh, she was trying to sing along here a moment ago. Now, it is New Year's, and New Year's brings, I, I know for many, New Year's brings the idea of New Year's resolutions. And you've got the New Year's resolutions just diehards who have 15 and they're line items, and you've got the, the anti-New Year's resolutions. Here, all I'll say is, it's that time of year when you start seeing stuff posted, this, there, and the other, and a lot of times, what do resolutions deal with? Finances, time, work, uh, work-home balance, uh, health. Here's a question. When's the last time you saw New Year's resolutions focused on how we talk about one another? How we talk about one another. And not only that, but the heart that drives how we talk about one another, both to each other, but, but also when we're not around each other, when we're around other people and we're talking. And That idea of of how we talk about each other is going to be exactly where James brings us as we dive back into James. We've been out for a little over a month, and we're going to dive back into James. So I invite you, if you uh, take your Bible, or if you don't have your Bible, you can grab the pew Bible in front of you and the page numbers on the the screens. But I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. James 4, 11 and 12. There's a lot to unpack as we're here. Now, let me, as we go there, let me just remind us, it's been six weeks since we've been in James, so let me just remind us, James, the biological half-brother of Jesus, uh, did not believe in Jesus during Jesus' earthly life and ministry. It's after Jesus' resurrection. Scripture tells us he appears to James. James believes that he is, in fact, the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, and and James begins to follow Christ, and, and in that period, James will quickly rise to prominence in that first church, that church that springs up that we see in Acts chapter 2 there in Jerusalem. James will be one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent leader of that church, and from that position of, of, of uh, pastoral authority and prominence, he writes to who are formerly, or not formerly, uh, to to predominantly Jewish believers who have been pushed out of Jerusalem due to persecution. We know from Acts, Acts chapter 8 and 9, a persecution arise. It sends out many of, the, uh, many of the believers that are there in Jerusalem. And so he's writing to these believers who are scattered abroad, who've been persecuted, some of them by their family, by their own home people who are now living in places that are not their home, who are many of whom we find are struggling financially, who are being unjustly defrauded of their pay, who, who are facing legitimate and real and true hardship. And he writes this letter to them where he wants them to be confident in God's grace, where he wants them to be zealous and passionate for God's righteousness, where he wants them to be driven by God's wisdom. And we've watched that play out, God's wisdom in terms of trial and how do we count it joy, God's wisdom in terms of uh, both having prosperity or experiencing poverty and God's wisdom in the area of speech. And he talks about speech there in chapter three. We looked at that weeks back, the power of the tongue, the untamed tongue. And And then we come in, and this is what he says. Do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. 
He who speaks against a brother or sister judges his brother or sister. They speak against the law and judges the law, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And here's, here's what he says right off the bat. He says, do not speak against one another. And brothers, or the term for those of us who are in the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, do not speak against one another. Or do not go on speaking against one another. Right off the bat, he gives us the central command. The whole point, the primary aim of the passage is this. Don't speak against one another. Or quite literally, do not speak down to or against one another. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting word in how it's put together. Church family, it covers a wide range. It covers a wide range of speech from things like slander, which we defined as speaking falsely against someone with a malicious or, or evil intent so as to attack their reputation. It covers gossip, which is casual or unconstrained conversation about other people most of the time involving things we don't really know if they're true and likely are exaggerated. It involves just flat-out criticism. And we even see from the way it's phrased, do not speak against one another, brothers, but he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, we know that this idea of speaking down or speaking against is connected to judging, where we are trying to drive the idea of driving distinctions in between people and, and being overly critical. It's, it's a kind of speech that involves willful false accusations. It involves exaggeration of faults that are not actually real, but perceived. It involves exaggerations of faults that are real. And it involves a needless repetition of faults, though they be true. Some would define it as a, critical, a critically derogatory speech that maliciously intends to influence others against the person being spoken about. By default, it's implying speaking about someone who's not actually present to speak up for themselves or to, to resist the accusation. It is a temper that is driven by fault-finding and, and, and criticizing and everybody else while maintaining the holy righteous virtue of the one who's speaking. Now, here's what's interesting about, this, about, this, about this, this idea, this term, speak against. While it covers the range of all of those kind of speech, the primary focus is not the kind of speech, but the heart behind speech. The primary focus and the way it's constructed with the use of the Greek preposition is not the, not the truth or falsity of what is said, but whether or not what is said is being said in charity or is being said in hostility from a heart that desires to pull down, to attack needlessly the reputation of another, to call their character into question for no other reason than one's own. And because it's driven by that heart, it is closely tied to the work, the activity of Satan, who is called the slanderer. He says, this, this kind of speech, this kind of speech, cease, stop, do not speak against, do not speak down against one another, which implies as he's writing to this group of people and he's saying, hey, this kind of way of talking, this kind of way of speaking about each other, cut it out. 
When he says one another, it implies that it's not just one or two people who've, who just, they've just got something, they've just got something not sitting right. They've got, they, they no, it implies that most of the people are doing this to each other. Someone's speaking and attacking the reputation of one, and that person's hearing and being hurt and going after that person in retaliation, and it's going on and on. And he's saying, cut it out. Don't speak this way to each other. And then he uses this term, brethren, brothers, which in that time would have been an encompassing term that referred to both. It's not just talking about only the men in Christ. It's talking about all who are in Christ, brothers and sisters, men and women, those who have been saved, redeemed by the grace of God through faith in Christ, those who make up the family of God. Stop speaking down and against each other. You who belong to each other as family, you who were bought for the same costly price with the same precious blood of a spotless lamb, you who it says of all people, Galatians 6, desire to do good, especially to those of the household of faith, you who, who should have the greatest and utmost of affection and love for each other because of what you've experienced in Christ and the position you now, you now sit in in Christ, you who are the family of God, cut it out. There is no place in the family of God for this kind of maliciously driven pettiness, cattiness, coming after and attacking each other's reputations. This is what James says. So understand, church family, what the whole point, we got a lot more to unpack, but the whole point of the passage today is we must stop if there is a presence of this kind of speech in our lives, stop it. Amen. And if maybe this is not a currently present in our life, then we better make sure we stand solidly opposed to it ever becoming. Because here's the real reality, church family, and that's why I brought up, you know, you don't see many New Year's resolutions regarding how we talk about one another. We know the nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. The reality is I've seen far fewer relationships ended and far less damage done with sticks and stones than words. Nothing can creep in to the family of God. And by the way, just so we're clear, this is where we are in James. So this is where God has brought us and what we're addressing. It doesn't mean that I'm aware of some massive problem of speaking against one another going on in the church. I'm not. But it is so easy to cross a very fine line And to move into a pattern of action where all of a sudden, maybe it's just one person who just for whatever reason rubs me wrong and I'm going to look at them with an extra eye of criticalness. I'm going to use my words to be just a little more harsh, a little more sting. Whatever it is, it's a very fine line that we can cross. And oh, would the enemy love to come in and put those roots of division because those roots of words used against one another will spread like wildfire. So we need to be clear. We must stop and oppose it. So what does this mean? What do we mean when we say this here? Well, I want to clarify what do we mean? What does this look like and, and practice, and what does it not look like? And let me start with what it doesn't look like. Speaking against one another does not mean that you are, are not allowed to form an opinion. This doesn't mean you're not allowed to form an opinion. 
An opinion can be neutral, an opinion can be positive, an opinion could be negative, an opinion could be driven by wisdom, or an opinion could be driven by spitefulness. The question is not whether or not you form an opinion about somebody, it's what drives that opinion. And here's what I mean. This doesn't mean that all of a sudden you just turn off your, your, your spiritual antenna in tune to the Holy Spirit and, and you're around somebody that there's just something off there and you just go, well, I'm just going to ignore and throw caution to the wind. It's not what I'm saying. It doesn't mean you can't have an opinion. It doesn't mean that you've got to force yourself to feel comfortable around people, that there's just something that's uncomfortable. Of course, the joke with this would always be, you know, the, the, the college girl who hears this, well, you can't speak against one another, so that guy that really creeps you out because he's acting creepy around you, go feel comfortable around him. No, it's not what it's talking about. If you're a college girl and a guy creeps you out, you should probably pay attention to that and not go around him. It's not an issue of forming an opinion. It's the issue of the love and enjoyment of fault-finding in others, of forming opinions that are fleshly and critical based on expectations that aren't in Scripture. So it's, it's not just simply forming an opinion. It's forming a wrong opinion. It's also not judging righteously. Now, here's why I point this out, because look, look back at the passage with me. He says, do not speak, do not continue going on speaking against one another, brothers. He who is habitually speaking against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. All of a sudden, this word that is a buzzword, and it has been for decades, don't you judge me. Jesus says, don't judge, don't judge me. Don't come in here with that, don't judge me. Well, what, what do we mean? Okay, understand If when we say don't judge me, we mean as a believer, do not make a value judgment on the behavior or belief of others based on God's righteousness, well, that's absolute malarkey. It's false. We are given commands in Scripture on the basis of God's righteous standards to judge both behaviors and beliefs in this world. By the way, if you're not allowed put this bluntly, if sin is not allowed to be called out, then James is violating his own command. No, see, we've come to a day and point where if if I dare look at you and say, you know what, God calls your behavior sin, well, don't you judge me, pastor. If what you're doing or if what I am doing is a blatant violation of God's word, it's not me judging you. You've judged yourself in the behavior that you've brought. So this doesn't have to do with judging. Christians are to judge constructively with humility and gentleness based on the fruit uh, in or through or lack thereof the lives of the person they're, they're examining. What we're not allowed to judge to do is to judge hypocritically where I overbear all the sin in your life and refuse to acknowledge the sin in my life. We're also not allowed to judge and where our judgment over. Uh, supersedes the judgment of God. God's word doesn't call that a sin, but I think it's a sin, so you're a terrible person. And you go, ah, pastor, we wouldn't, we would never do that. Oh, absolutely, we do that. Come back to that in a moment. Here's the reality. Listen, James 5, we'll see this at the very end of James. James 5 says this, my brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth, so if any one of you steps into sin and one of you steps up and turns him back, 
Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a multitude, uh, will save his, uh, his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James himself actually calls us when we see one another stumble to go after each other. Paul will write in Galatians chapter 6, speaking of the same, he writes this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual, so you who are walking rightly, restore such a person. Do it in the spirit of gentleness, keeping lookout to yourselves so you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So not only are we called to go after each other when, when there's sin that comes in the picture, not only are we called to address that sin, we're to do it in a spirit of gentleness with a heart who's driven not by calling out one another's faults, but by pointing out the sin in each other's life so there can be restoration in our lives with the Lord and with each other. There, so there, there's a certain spirit behind it. There's a certain intention behind it. Not only this, but Jesus gives us the pattern for how we do it. Talking in Matthew chapter 18, he says, if your brother sins, notice what he, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if your brother sins, turn a blind eye and say absolutely nothing. That's not what it says. It says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Don't go make a big deal of it. Don't go plaster it on Instagram. Don't go post it all over Facebook. Don't call, uh, don't call the news. Don't go share it as a prayer request, a.k.a. gossip, in your Sunday school class. Go to the person. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. You've brought restoration. You've done so in gentleness. If he doesn't listen to you, take two or more with you, so by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to the group, take it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, uh, then let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. The reality is Jesus gives a pattern. If Paul tells us the spirit and the aim of confronting one another, of judging one another, Jesus gives us the pattern and how to do it. So we need to be clear. When, when James writes here and says, don't speak against one another, don't judge one another, he is not saying that we should show a blind indifference to sin. He is not saying saying we should fail to biblically analyze another's beliefs or behavior. He is not saying we should fail to take gentle and corrective restorative action. He is not encouraging that we be passive with things that are blatant violations of Scripture. He does not mean that we should not actually call each other's sin out. This is not what he means. There is a place for righteous judgment for a righteous evaluation. There is a place to be walking rightly with Christ, to see a brother fall into sin. Now, Lord willing, if we're walking with Christ, all of us are going to slip into sin. And if we're sensitive to the Spirit, the Spirit's going to convict us. We're going to, we're going to re repent, acknowledge that sin to the Lord, and we're going to get back on track. And hopefully no one other than the Holy Spirit's had to confront us. But if we ignore the Spirit's conviction and, and there's the body of Christ around us, then we have a responsibility to God and to each other to hold each other accountable. So let me be clear. If you walk away from today's sermon and you go, man, my sin got called out. I'm being judged, and that's wrong. You have missed the point. Just want to be clear. Sometimes, if I'm walking in sin, and I refuse to acknowledge it to the Holy Spirit's conviction, and someone has to come point it out, that will probably hurt my feelings and be offensive. That doesn't mean it's wrong. 
Now, the flip side is also this church family. There have been many of us who have sought to confront sin, and we do so with glee in our heart that we get to point out someone else's faults, and that would be wrong. And that's what he's aiming at here. He is, he is aiming at a way to speak about each other. He is aiming at a way where we delight in the fault-finding process. And what we've got to do, we've got to flee it. We must flee gossip. We must do away with speaking falsehoods, with malicious intent to slander. We must step away from criticizing each other by spotlighting and exaggerating weaknesses or maybe another person's eccentricities. We need to recognize there is an unchristlike heart that delights to find fault in others, to, that is allured and flirts with and habitually speaks in these ways. Church family, if we're really compelled by the love of God and we're walking in the humility before God, then there is no place from us to come and all of a sudden in a critical spirit to just speak down and against each other. There's no place. And it's condemned all throughout Scripture. God says in, in Psalm 101, whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. In Proverbs 6, the seven things the Lord detests, listen, five of them, haughty eyes, lying tongue, heart devises wicked schemes, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up uh, controversy in the community, five of those apply to this sin. So how do we do this? How do we actually engage in this sin, church family? Well, first, it likely starts in our minds. In our minds. We begin to focus on the bad or the ignoring, and, and we dismiss any notion of good. We begin to, in our minds, have conversation between me, myself, and I. That I can't believe that person did that. I can't believe that person. I can't believe that person didn't, didn't get that per, get, didn't, you know, we'll just do it. I have no problem. I love, let the little kids come to church. If a kid cries in church, a kid cries in church. But then there have been some in church. I can't believe that person didn't get that kid out fast enough. Well, we got five other kids and they're trying their best. How dare you judge their heart? Starts in our minds. Then it comes out casually in conversation. Likely when the other person's not around. We can do this in conversation with each other. Can you, can you believe so-and-so? Can you believe so-and-so let their kid wear that to church? <laughs> By the way, I was the one who got capes outlawed in the church nursery because parents did exactly that. I wanted to wear a cape to church. My parents didn't care. He's two. Let them wear a cape to church. Other parents cared. Church banned capes in the nursery. It's my fault. <laughs> we do this with others. We do this on social media. Instagram, Reddit. We post videos. We do this with our spouses. Cannot believe, cannot believe we don't have something for lunch today. Forget the fact that we just got back in town. We had no food in the house. We had to put a grocery order and we've got, we're barely catching up on sleep. How dare we not have lunch today? I cannot believe the irresponsibility of my spouse. We do it with our spouses. We do it with our kids. There's mistakes children make because they're children that they don't intend to make. It's just because they're kids and they don't know better. But man, we come down on them as if they're 100 years old with all the wisdom in the world. And don't get me wrong, there is a time kids make bonehead mistakes and you got to lay the hammer down. I'm not saying that's not there. We do it as, with our parents, both as kids and as adults. We do it with our coworkers, our boss. 
our teammates, our classmates, our teachers, our coaches, church leaders, uh, others in the church. Oh, yeah, we can talk down about, I, I can't believe. I can't believe he did this. I can't believe he said that. I can't believe they're okay with this. I can't believe. It can come from a spirit of outright malicious spite. It can come from a heightened sense of morality and perfectionism. It can come from a spirit of simple petty cattiness. It can also come from a spirit that just is so casual, we don't care to think about how our words could, could be used to hurt somebody. We do this. It comes up common on issues of secondary, of secondary importance. Can you believe, can you believe in this economy that they dared take that vacation there? Well, I got news for you. Unless they spent their money on something blatantly sinful, God didn't give you that money to steward, so it's none of your business. We've seen this. Well, can, can you believe? Can you believe that they would let their kids do that? Well, maybe there's something legitimately concerning you see in a family that's allowing their kids to do something rather than just instantly jump to. Those parents must be the stupidest people on the planet. Maybe what you don't know is those parents are new believers. They didn't have the discipleship from a child as you did. They never saw their parents do it. And what they need is not a church family talking down to them. What they need is a church family who will come around them and love them enough to say, hey, I just, I love you deeply and I see something that might be concerning. Would you mind if I just share some wisdom with you? And if they receive it, awesome. You've been an encouragement and a blessing. If they don't receive it, then that's not on you. That's on them. There's all sorts of illustrations of hyper, what maybe we'd call a hyper-Puritanism. We, uh, we all know some of the old jokes, right? Baptists don't dance and Baptists don't play cards. Now, here's the reality. Not all dancing can be a Satan because there's dancing in Scripture. Dancing's not the problem. It's certain kinds of dancing. I don't know if there's anything more wicked about a deck of playing cards and there's anything more wicked about a baseball bat. It's what you do with them. We can come up with all sorts of things and all sorts of ways we can judge. We can judge other motives or actions. Can, they said this. They said this in the church business meeting. That must mean their heart is really this. Well, you know what? Sometimes people don't realize what they sound like coming out of their mouth, so it's best we don't assume motives. It's better that we go talk to that person one-on-one. Or I can't believe that person must not take Jesus seriously. They wear flip-flops to church. By the way, your pastor wore flip-flops to church for two years in high school. <laughs> Here's what made me think of this, though. We were watching a documentary, my dad and I, and they, they, they focused in on the Jesus movement of the late 60s, where there was this sweeping movement among many of the young people who were hippies who could not find fulfillment in sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and all of a sudden, many of them were being open to turn to find fulfillment in the only one who could give it, Jesus Christ, and they were coming to faith in Christ. But they also didn't fit the mold of what a churchgoer looked like in the 1960s. And there are some churches who went, I can't believe you look like that, get out of here. And there's other churches and stories like those out of my grandfather's church where they'd have people getting saved in droves left and right as people came in all over the place because they said, you know what, you don't know Jesus, you don't even know what to do. Come on in and let us tell you. It's interesting, in that same time, there was a, well, I'll come back to that. <laughs> come back to that. My whole point, church family, is we've got to be careful because it is very easy for us to fall into a place 
where we can even start with good intentions, but where all of a sudden we become just nitpicky and all over the place and we bring a judgment and we bring this and that. In that same documentary, he talks about uh, uh, a, a secular rock band in the 1980s. Heard a pastor on television share the gospel and lead them in the plan of salvation. Now, unbeknownst to this pastor, because on TV, the whole band, their, their family, a bunch of brothers, they all gave their lives to the Lord. And we, know, we, we don't know what to do to start, but we know we're musicians, so instead of, instead of writing music about things that dishonors the Lord, let's write music about Jesus. So they wrote music about Jesus, but they were still a rock band. And it would be several years later that that same pastor was on the platform of his church calling that band by name Satanic, even though they were singing about Jesus in the only way they knew how. We can do it all over the place, church family. It is, it is why it is so here. And, and because it is so easy, James is going to help, help us see the weight of it. Here's what he says. He says, the one who's marked by this, not the one who slips. All of us are going to slip occasionally. You're going to slip occasionally. You're going to say something you didn't mean to, something that was a little snarky, something that was a little judgmental. And you may even need to go to that person and apologize. But James isn't talking about just the simple slip. He says, the one who is continually speaking, the one who is continually judging, this person, here's, notice the weight of it. This person is speaking against the law and judges the law. When you and I engage in this kind of behavior, whether it's towards many people or whether we just have it out for one person, when we engage in this kind of behavior, it says that we speak against and we judge the law. Now, what do we mean by the law? Well, remember, here in James, James, James isn't referring back to the laws in the Old Testament law. He's referring to the law of liberty. Or as Paul would say, the law of the spirit and life, he is referring to that law that is a reflection, not of what God said is right or wrong, but is a reflection of God's very character. And because it's a reflection of God's very character, it's what God expects and intends for the life of his children to look like. He says, when we as, when we as followers of Christ, when we engage in this kind of speaking, when we engage in this kind of behavior... When we do this, we are actively setting ourselves against the law of liberty, the law, that, the law of Christ. What we are doing is we are saying, you know what? I know better than what God expects of me. That law of liberty which says my heart for my brother and sister should be at its base, a heart driven by love. That sees the value of my brother and sister, whether or not, and whether or not they're a lot like me, whether they're a, a lot different than me, whether I understand them, whether I don't understand them, whether I think they're normal or they're a little eccentric. Regardless of all of that, they are in Christ. There is a value upon them because Jesus bled out his precious blood to wipe them white as snow. I look at them and see the value Jesus places on them, and I love them. And from that base of love, I treat them with patience and mercy and grace and kindness. And yes, I speak truth to them, but I do it in love, out of love. And, and I, I walk with this is this law of liberty. What it says is when we, when we think and speak in a way that is speaking against, we are saying to, to God's law of liberty, to God's law of love, you know what? That's really not good enough. That's too strict. Really, it ought to be a little bit more harsh where I can just come in and finger point and say this and that and the other. But he takes it a step further. We're not just criticizing the law. Look what he says. He says, you are not a doer of the law, 
but a judge of the law. Here's what he says. Remember back. He says, we're to be what? Not hearers of the word, doers. The whole point of the letter is that you and I would be doers of the word. But when you and I begin to walk down this path of judgmental criticism and and, and a constant speaking down of one another, what we do is we cease to be doers and we place ourselves, most of us without realizing what we're doing, we place ourselves in a position as judge over the law. And this is where it gets intense. Look what he says. There is only one lawgiver And there is only one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. He says, listen, there is only one person, there is only one being who gets to preside over the law and decide and determine what is right or wrong. He is the lawgiver. He is God. And he doesn't decide what is right or wrong by some... some arbitrary, well, you know what? As I'm sitting here, I think, I think this should be right. This should be wrong. No, what is right or wrong? He is the law giver, which means the law proceeds forth from him. The law, the law of love, the law of liberty, it is a reflection of God himself. This is how one, one pastor wrote, or one theologian wrote, he says, God's law is not an arbitrary collection of precepts which happens to contain the selection of all possible commands. His law is the expression of who and what he is. He gives us his commands in order that by obeying them, we might fashion our lives in his image. Elements which exist as principles of the divine nature have been expressed as precepts, things to do or not do for believers, so that the life of God may be seen in our mortal bodies. Very well then, to disobey his law is to contradict him. To value our opinions above the law is to value ourselves above him. Now that adds a whole lot more weight to when that person who just drives me nuts and I want to say something sharp and nasty and critical to my mind or to someone else that adds a whole lot more weight to what's really taking place there. Because there's only one who has the right. And he's determined what the pattern of conduct should be. It's that we love and value each other. It's that we legitimately care for each other. Yes, it means that we go after each other when we sin. Yes, it means we have the courage driven by the Spirit and we do so in humility and gentleness to say, hey, brother, I see this in your life and this is a problem. Let's talk about this. It means that, absolutely, because we love each other, because we're bound by the same grace and blood of Christ. But when we choose not to do that, We attempt to take the place of God. Which, by the way, especially for a Wednesday night crowd, is taking the place of God not what the sin of Satan was? And so he ends with this emphatic question, you, and it's interesting, he puts it not in the plural but the singular, 
It's a, pro- it's a plural problem. Many people are doing it, but he's aiming it at each and every one of us individually. You, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to take this spirit of malicious criticalness, to use slander and gossip and criticism and, and, and false and fleshly judgment to attack and speak down and put down your brothers and sisters in Christ, and then he takes it even further at the end, and he says, your neighbor, which would imply even those outside of the body. Who are you that you would have the audacity to do this? And of course, the answer is, church family, who, who am I to do? I, I'm not. I'm not. We aren't. We do not have the right to act in such a way. So understand, here's what the command is. There's this way of speaking against and down each other. We're called to cut it out, to use just real common everyday language. We're called to cut it out, oppose it, be against it. How do we do that? Well, really, he unpacks that in these these two things he shows us here. Part of how do we do that is, one, if I find in myself that that kind of critical spirit exists, I need to understand the weight of what it is. I need to understand that it's not just that I have a little bit of a critical spirit towards someone or somebody's. What really is going on is somewhere inside of me, there is a root of pride that thinks I have the right to sit on the throne of the law in God's place and bring judgment on that person. And I need to own that. I need to acknowledge the seriousness of that. I need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I am so sorry I didn't think that's what I was doing. That's not certainly what I set out to do, but I recognize in this attitude and this spirit that I have towards others, this is what it is, and I am so sorry. I'm acknowledging you're right. I'm acknowledging that you're wrong because I have acted in arrogance against you. And it's possibly because we don't acknowledge this all the time that the reason there are so many closet narcissists running around in the church is because we really think it's actually all about me. It's not about me. It's not about my judgment. It's about him. It's about his words. It's about his judgments. It's about his love for this world, for his people, for his church. It's all about the Lord. And so the first step, if we're going to really cut it out, if we're going to really stand and set against is if I find in my heart, then I need to acknowledge the reality of what's really going on. I am walking in arrogance against the Lord, and I need to repent. That's one. Two, I need to humbly submit to the law of liberty. That's what he talks about, that there's this law of liberty, this law of liberty that is there, this law of liberty in which... It's a law of liberty because it's the only one that gives true freedom. There's no freedom in the criticism of each other. There is freedom in the love of each other. There is no freedom in being harsh with one another and and going behind each other's backs and backstabbing, but there is freedom in caring for one another and going after one another and encouraging one another. There is a humble submission to, to what God actually expects in our life, which is not to speak down towards one another, but what is the action of the ultimate neighbor that Jesus speaks about, the good Samaritan? He doesn't speak down to the man on the road. He goes down to the man on the road to serve, to care, to meet that need. To choose to love one another is the key to walking away from speaking down. You want to see speaking down to your spouse? 
pause, take a breath, step off the throne of your own heart and remember their value and love them. You want to you do the same with your parents? You want to do the same with the coworker who drives you crazy? Choose to love. You acknowledge the arrogance against God that it is, and you submit to the law of liberty where there is room only for bending my knee and coming down to abandon my self-interest and meet my brother and sister where they're at. When I was in seminary, this story was shared with me. And that perfectly illustrates what we're talking about. I, I was not in this class. I heard this secondhand, but it was shared by one who was in the class, so it's not just one of those pastor stories that's made up because it sounds good. But there was a student in seminary who every day, nearly every day would come in late to class. Come in late, disheveled, sometimes clear, hadn't bathed. Work sometimes was half turned in. Some assignments were missed. There were, there were many days that he was nodding off in the middle of class, and, and one day he came in a few minutes late as the professor was lecturing, and the professor had just had it. And he proceeded to chew the young man out in front of the class. You know, if you're going to be a pastor, you've you got to have discipline, you've got to have all this stuff. Class ended, that guy scattered out, and another student came up to the professor and said, Professor, I really wish you wouldn't have done that. And he said, what you don't know is the reason that that guy comes in half awake, comes in late assignments. His wife has stage four cancer. He's working multiple jobs overnight to be able to provide, to cover her medical bills. He hasn't had a full night's sleep in months. He's, and he goes on down the line. And of course, the professor instantly gripped in sorrow and grief in his heart because he realizes the sin of his ways, uh, obviously went out and found the student and apologized profusely to him and said it right. But church family, there's the reality. It is far too easy for me to look at others in my own family and come after them with a spirit of criticalness that's not driven by love. It's driven by frustration. It's driven by pride. It's driven by whatever else, but it's not driven by love. Now, vice versa is this. When I was in college, I, had had a, I was an RA. I had had an insanely late night counseling a young man in the office. I don't, I, if I remember right, it was three or four in the morning when I went to bed. Had morning class, got up, got through lunch, and then, of course, I mean, even if you get a good night's sleep, right, what's the worst time of day to try to stay awake? It's right after lunch. I had class. And in that class, oh my goodness, I was falling asleep. I was trying so hard to stay awake. And the professor stopped me and said, hey, are you okay? He didn't chew me out in front of the class. He said, are you okay? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I'm an RA. And I was counseling. He said, stop right there. All I need to know is you're an RA and I understand. <laughs> and whereas one student walked out of class I can't imagine how unbelievably crushed in his heart. I walked out of class knowing that my professor and brother in Christ cared enough to check and see how I was doing because he noticed something was off. That's the power of the tongue, church family. And if we want to be a church family that truly God continues to move in mighty and great ways through us, we must be a church family that does not speak down to each other but a church family that uplifts each other. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. As I shared earlier, I'm not aware of some major issues, so I'm not... God, if there's any of us who are guilty, you pierce our hearts. God, if there's people that we've, that we've been sharp with our words to and we need to go apologize, then Lord, may we go apologize. But Father, may we be a family that when we say and we tell the world, when, we, when, when someone walks in who doesn't know you and we say, you know what, yeah, there is a love here, the way that we care for each other, that even impacts the way we talk about out each other when we're not around. But that's mind-blowing to a world that has no reason to do that. So Jesus, may we not lift ourselves up. May we not act like our enemy and think we have a right to sit on your throne and make judgment. But may we, Lord, just humbly submit and find the freedom and liberty that is actually yielding to and living out what you've saved us to live out. Jesus, we respond to this invitation. May you be honored. It's in your name.